Hello and welcome to a new episode of COVID-19, The Pandemic and Europe, a podcast series by the UCL European Institute. My name is Uta Steiger and I am Executive Director of the Institute. In today's episode, we will be exploring the nature, intellectual history and justification of emergency powers. In times of urgency, governments habitually concentrate power and restrict or even suspend citizens' rights. For example, as we are now all too aware, by issuing stay-at-home orders and closing businesses to control the spread of a pandemic. Now, while such measures are clearly necessary, it does remain important that we scrutinise the extraordinary powers conferred upon governments in such times. We would arguably also do well to think more broadly about what such exceptional situations do to liberal democracies, which are after all, defined by the preservation of rights and freedoms, the division of powers and the rule of law. In order to discuss this, I am joined by three colleagues today who have made these sorts of questions the focus of their work. Jeff King is Professor of Law at UCL, where he works on UK and comparative constitutional law, human rights, legal and political theory and, most recently, the social dimension of law. He has also been one of the legal advisors to the House of Lords Select Committee on the Constitution, giving advice on the coronavirus bill in advance of its fast-tracked passage through Parliament. Valentina Arena is Associate Professor at UCL's Department of History, where she works on the history of ancient ideas and ancient political thought in the Roman Republic. In her book on Roman Liberty, She also explores how ancient theories of freedom may contribute to contemporary political thinking. And last but certainly not least, Nomi Claire Lazar is a political theorist. She joins us from Singapore, where she is Associate Dean of Faculty at the Yale NUS College. Having written a book exactly on the topic, States of Emergencies in Liberal Democracy, Nomi also recently served on a panel advising Canada's chief science advisor on the use of rights derogating technologies during the current state of emergency. To begin with, Naomi, can you tell us more about what the key characteristics of an emergency are and how we may define them? Well, I think the classic construal of a state of emergency is a situation that threatens the life of the state But of course, uh, in practice, emergencies have a much broader scope, comprising economic emergencies, public health emergencies, uh, war or military threats, and natural disasters. In my earlier work, I tried to uh, um, find some thread that ties these all together uh, in the, in, through the terms urgency and scale. But now I've started to think that there's a more natural way to characterize what constitutes a public emergency. So if we think about a normal emergency, someone having a heart attack or a fire or a bridge collapse, the state can respond. So the state sends the fire brigade or the ambulance, but in a public emergency, the ambulance can't get to you or the fire service is overwhelmed or there aren't enough ventilators. So a public emergency we could think of as a situation that not only affects the public, but rather requires the public in order to resolve it. So we can't simply rely on the state uh, to, and its resources to resolve the situation. 
And the reason why I think this is a, a much more natural and attractive way of characterizing a state of emergency is that it shows the intrinsic connection between rights derogations and limitations and public emergency. Because the rights are, that are limited or derogated are specifically those, uh, the means through which the state enlists and brings order to public efforts to resolve the situation. So it's a way of aligning the public interest and the public in resolving the situation. Thank you, Naomi. Um, the pandemic we're currently living under comes perhaps closest to such a definition of an emergency as you've just outlined, certainly closer than any other that we have seen in our times. In order to address the pandemic, the UK, as of course other countries in Europe and beyond, has imposed the restrictions that we now refer to as lockdown. Uh, turning to you, Jeff, uh, could you give us an overview of the legal basis for these measures here in the UK? What is the source of the powers government now holds? Yes, yeah, so it is important to start with the recognition that the UK does not have a codified written constitution and an emergency procedure in that constitution. So it's not invoking a state of alarm uh, as many countries have done. Not all countries have done this. Uh, Italy hasn't done this. Uh, to my understanding, Germany has not done this. There are four important sets of rules for dealing with the crisis. Uh, one of those important set of rules hasn't been used at all, and it's quite relevant. It's called the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004. And that's a general statutory framework for dealing with emergencies of all kinds. It's a very general framework that confers incredibly wide powers on government, uh, which are controlled by parliament. I'll come to that a bit later. And it was not used in this case. And that was a subject of some controversy. And the reason I think it wasn't used is that there is another set of rules contained in a statute called the Public Health Control of Disease Act of 1984, which was amended in 2008 after the SARS pandemic, precisely to provide a framework for powers, the Secretary of State and government uh, to make general regulations to deal with pandemics as well as conferring special powers on justices of the peace, a judicial official, to make public health orders against individuals. So that, that act created those powers for England and Wales. Um, what happened with the Coronavirus Act, which was passed in Parliament only over the space of about five days, it was 350 pages, this statute. Now that is meant to supplement the scheme in the 1984 Act to deal specifically with the coronavirus uh, issue. So it has a huge range of miscellaneous items in it, as well as to extend the powers that are in the 1984 Act for England and Wales to Scotland and Northern Ireland on a temporary basis. So the Act was brought through with extreme speed, but it was also coordinated between the political parties so that it would pass with as little controversy as possible. Now those three sets of rules, Civil Contingencies Act not used, Public Health Act 84 it is used, and the Coronavirus Act uh, are the main statutory uh, framework provisions, but it's the use of executive regulation-making powers that provides for the lockdown that everyone is under right now. And those regulations were, in England and Wales, were not passed under the Coronavirus Act, but were passed under the 1984 Act. And it's those provisions which have imposed restraints on personal movement, on closure of business premises, and so on. And there is a debate about whether the powers in the 1984 Act which admittedly were for dealing with pandemics, were quite so broad as to allow the essential, con essentially the confinement of almost everyone in their house, outside a few exceptions. Um, can I follow up on that, Jeff? Um, 
Can you just go back and tell us a little bit more what kind of safeguards are currently in place to ensure that this executive action does remain lawful and remains scrutinized and proportionate? So the requirement of proportionality is built into the grant of power under both the 1984 Act and the Coronavirus Act. So if the Secretary of State proposes to make regulations that don't seem proportionate to a response to the health crisis, then a court is empowered effectively to intervene and uh, to strike down the regulations. The main security for the huge bevy of rules and regulations and powers in the Coronavirus Act, which was passed so quickly, is that the act will expire, or the main provisions of the act that are considered invasive of liberty, will expire after about six months unless the House of Commons votes to continue them. And that's called a sunset provision. The government initially contended for two years, uh, and they quickly conceded that six months would be fine. Now, the exercise of powers under the Coronavirus Act and the 1984 Act, that is, when public health officials like police constables or doctors or uh, nurses, when they exercise powers to constrain people uh, under the Act, any exercise of those powers is appealable to the magistrate's courts. And the higher courts will continue to operate. The government did not suspend the European Convention on Human Rights, so all of the regular framework of the Bill of Rights still applies by this period. The powers that, that were exercised to impose a lockdown, in particular, they need to be reviewed every 21 days by the government, not by parliament. There's a huge amount of accountability for that review, but the fact remains it's, by the, it's the government that conducts the review and makes the decision. Under the Civil Contingencies Act, any such regulations would need to be reviewed and approved by parliament every 30 days. So some people perceive there to be a parliamentary accountability deficit. Another view, which is the one I have, is that the 1984 Act has a, a more bespoke procedure for dealing with a pandemic and a lot of smaller but very important procedural protections built into the Act, which were also transferred to the uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland under the 2020 Act. But that's a debate that's happening now. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Um, let me broaden out the topic a little bit further. You've mentioned um, that the UK hasn't used any state of emergency declaration. In fact, that very few other um, countries have done so. Um, and that's despite the fact that they could have done so. As you also mentioned, Jeff, um, the um, European Convention of Human Rights actually has an article, Article 15, that would allow technically contracting states to derogate from some part of the convention during states of emergency, including ours. So the question is, why have states been hesitant to declare states of emergency? Now, I want to turn to Nomi to um, get a sense of, of why that might be the case. So I think this is quite an interesting question, and there are two ways that we could approach it. And the first would be to say that uh, states of emergency have quite a fraught history within Europe, uh, certainly um, when we think about Germany and the Weimar Constitution and the large number of states of emergency that uh, that were uh, used at at that time and the horrible consequences. Uh, and in this area, we, of course, think of, of the work of Carl Schmitt, for example, uh, who, who tends to be the, the theorist that that we refer to when we're uh, when we're considering states of emergency. However, I'm not sure that that is the best explanation here, uh, in part because even in states where states of emergency are declared with some frequency, so for example, in the United States and Canada, where 
local governments and provincial or state governments routinely declare states of emergency, for example, when there's some kind of uh, natural disaster. Uh, we, we find that uh, at the national level, uh, so, so with the central government in a, in a federal state, uh, that emergency powers aren't used. So in Canada, for example, the Emergencies Act, which has been uh, in force for 30 or more years, has never been used. And so it's not the stigma of the state of emergency itself, but that there may be other political factors in play. So what does it communicate when one declares a state of emergency versus when uh, when Parliament uh, or Congress might put a new piece of legislation in place? So in the United States, for example, where there are just mountains and mountains of emergency legislation, they routinely make new legislation when there's a new crisis, perhaps because it's a way of communicating to the populace that, uh, uh, that something is being done. But along these lines, you know, we could compare uh, Hungary and Singapore, for example, as two states that have you know, approximately two-thirds uh, strong public support and therefore could could really do anything they wanted largely within a legislature but have taken quite different tacks so for orban you know how does he bolster his legitimacy uh, by communicating strength and power this is something that his uh, that his political base wants to see whereas in singapore legitimacy rests on the perception of steady seamless competence and so singapore did not even did not do anything except invoke existing legislation so we have to think, uh, as, as we ask this question about who declares a state of emergency and who doesn't, what the declaration actually communicates in each case beyond the legal aspect. Um, Naomi, can I just um, quiz you a little bit further? You mentioned very briefly the work of Carl Schmidt, and I think um, for any discussion of a state of emergency, it probably makes sense to have a very clear understanding what his main sort of um, conception of the state of emergency was and why it's been so tainted. Could you just give us a very, very brief sort of a talk through of that? Okay, so um, uh, it was the view of Carl Schmitt that uh, liberal democracy was fundamentally unworkable because it was sort of endless talk. And there exist certain situations, he thought, uh, which he distinguished from emergencies more broadly, what he called Ausnahmezustand, so states of exception rather than just regular emergencies. And these were situations in which the, uh, the existence of the people was threatened. And Schmidt thought that the only way in which uh, uh, one could take this, this fact seriously was to acknowledge that, uh, that sovereign power uh, rested with a particular uh, person who was above the law. So norms emanate from this person, and this person's decisions are not norm-governed. They're not constrained by law. They're not constrained by norms. And so in his fa famous expression, he said, sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Uh, and so this, uh, this idea that there are times of normalcy and that laws apply in times of normalcy, and then there is this state of exception in which sovereign power takes over and uh, rules without norms and without law uh, as the source of law uh, has given rise to a lot of scholarship that conflates the state of emergency, which is profoundly norm-governed, uh, with this uh, notion of a state of exception, uh, which I believe is, is not uh, related to, to empirical reality, even remotely and even in Weimar. So the issue here in, in many ways is that um, we have the concept of emergency on the one hand as being radically defined as a total exception to the rules where no laws, no uh, norms um, can apply at all. Um, and on the other hand, you have 
obviously critics of that position who say if we take that as face value, no such state of emergency is permissible at all in our liberal democracies. Now, as we now find ourselves in a situation of emergency where we do need to act, um, that clearly isn't a tenable position either. So is there any way that we can normatively find our way out of that conundrum? Um, sure. So first of all, we might want to distinguish, although that they come back together, that the uh, an exception from norms and an exception from laws. And so as Jeff has described the situation in which the UK is uh, currently existing, this is clearly not a situation in which uh, sovereign power is governing, but rather a situation in which a piece of legislation was passed that is subject to various forms of constraint and review, uh, where we anticipate elections will continue to take place and informal power is still active as the, the government has to expect some kind of accountability. So there are all kinds of constraints, some legal, um, some uh, informal, acting alongside the legislation uh, to make it the case that this is not a state of exception, but but rather a situation in which, uh, in which uh, rights have been limited and in certain cases derogated. Now, from a strictly moral perspective, this is also, we can also understand this as continuous with times of normalcy, because there's no situation, even in normal politics, in which moral values don't conflict. They always conflict. And one of these norms is always the salus populi. It's always the public good. Uh, peace and order. Uh, these are always values that, uh, that, that sit alongside uh, the, the kinds of values we associate with liberal democracy. So if we think about things like the regulation of gambling, uh, the usual public health regulations, food safety, et cetera, we limit rights all the time in the service of the public good. And so from a moral perspective, there's quite a bit of continuity between times of normalcy and times of emergency. It's just that in a state of emergency, uh, to go back to the, uh, the, the way that I'm currently conceptualizing it, uh, w people need to give up or people need to help the state resolve the situation, and they do that by having their rights uh, limited or, in certain cases, derogated. And it might be that the modes of constraint need to shift as well, uh, because the kind of oversight that, that we normally have uh, may not be possible in, under conditions of, of urgency. So as, as Jeff mentioned, uh, you know, the government as opposed to parliament, uh, for example. Uh, but, but we shouldn't conflate either in moral terms or in legal terms, a state of emergency with a state of exception in which norms are, not, uh, are, are no longer in force. Let's take a step back um, and turn to Valentina to look at the origins of the concepts of liberty as we um, work with them today and also on how these um, forms of liberties might be legitimately constrained. So Valentina, how is liberty, libertas, um, conceived of in ancient Rome, both by political thinkers and also by political actors. Political liberty in uh, in Rome, in the late Republic, I would say uh, in the Republic overall, was conceptualized as absence of slavery. Now, um, this is a status uh, that in Rome was um, created and protected by a number of rights. And these rights were the right to suffragium, so the right to vote, uh, the right to provocatio, that is the right that protected the life and the person of a citizen against the abuses of uh, a magistrate, the, the right of the tribune of the plebs to present 
legislation to a, a voting assembly, to the legislative assembly, uh, but also, and most importantly, perhaps, uh, the uh, overall umbrella of the rule of law. So obedience to the laws was considered uh, a guarantee of uh, freedom. Uh, now, I think, however, <laughs> that the kind of liberty that uh, those people who are currently protesting against uh, the our lockdown and all our measures, uh, you know, that, that Jeff and Nomi have been talking about, is not the same, precisely the same, conceptually the same, uh, as the Romans conceived of it. So they seem to be um, claiming that the government is acting unjustly because it's infringing uh, a liberty that is really absent of interference. They don't want to be interfered in their life, in their choice of, let's say, moving around uh, wherever they want to go. I instead, for, for a Roman, the key issue is not to have a master, not to be subjected to something that is arbitrarily imposed on you. So for a Roman, you can be free to go wherever you want and still be a slave. Because if you, ha if you have a kind master and he allows you to walk freely around Rome or wherever you are, uh, that is fine. But you are still not free for the Romans. You are a slave. Uh, so the, the way in which uh, the Romans conceptualized freedom in this respect, it is different. It is not absence of, of interference. So just to um, recapitulate then, um, rights really are absolutely central, uh, Valentina, to the very notion of liberty in ancient Rome. They are the, as you put it somewhere, the institutional means through which the, um, the liberty of citizens was both established and, and protected. So laws were not conceived as subjecting or constraining citizens, but enabling them to be free. Is that right? So yes, laws really uh, guaranteed, in a way, they were the highest, for the Romans, they were the highest protection of political liberty. And uh, they guarantee this liberty as, essentially in two ways. First of all, because they guarantee those rights that established liberty for all citizens on the same basis. Although these rights uh, were guaranteed to all at a minimal level, mm -hmm. so they were all, for example, they were all entitled to vote, notionally, although their vote didn't count equally in a very complicated uh, voting system. And the, the second point is that laws, uh, again, at least conceptually, embedded the direct expression of the people's will. So in Rome, legislation was passed by uh, a, the assembly of the Roman people, where at least nominally all the Roman people uh, could attend and were entitled to vote. Therefore, what happened was that since laws gave uh, an institu institutionalized expression uh, to the will of the people, there was no citizens who could claim that he was subjected to a kind of life he had not himself decided. There is this famous quote um, by Cicero from um, a, a speech that he pronounced in, well, he published in defense of Cluentius, where he says, we are all slave of the laws in order to be free. The key point, um, I think conceptually, is that the kind of interference that the laws exercise uh, in the life of a Roman citizen, and some people did object to this kind of interference, was not considered arbitrary. Jeff, 
very quickly. I mean, it's 2,000 years since, but very broadly speaking, do we still today have a similar conception of the relationship between rights and the law under normal circumstances? That's a hard question to answer in a straightforward way, but I'll do my best. There is, in my view, a classical liberal hangover in contemporary public law, which, which tends to regard the state as a form of leviathan and thinks that liberty is an absence of state, re state restraint uh, and also that a total constraint of state power by means of very clear law is necessary in a just society. So discretion emerges as tyranny which is incompatible with the idea of, a, of, of the modern administrative state. Uh, so it's a significant part of my research agenda to correct that tendency in theoretical discussions in public law and some of its tendencies. My experience is that when you discuss these issues with parliamentarians and judges and barristers, there isn't really a deep-seated uh, state skepticism in the bar or on the bench. And you can see in the modern practice of human rights where proportionality is a dominant standard, that that, that form of state skepticism just is not uh, an endemic feature of modern public law. Um, what about you, Naomi? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would just uh, quickly point out that uh, in the history of political thought, uh, some, some distinguish between Republican liberty, which is precisely the type of thing that Valentina has just been describing, and uh, a more liberal conception of liberty. So in one case, that 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 liberty is uh, ruling over yourself, it's autonomy. And in the other case, that liberty is the absence of constraint. So this seems to, or this distinction in the history of political thought seems to map onto uh, uh, what uh, Valentina is contrasting with, or ra rather what Jeff is contrasting with Valentina's uh, account. So um, if we take those um, uh... The, the, those dilemmas, if you like, or those tensions. Um, Valentina, again, turning back to ancient Rome, um, what happens then if a domestic crisis is um, in existence or is at least perceived to be there? Um, what kind of court tools, if at all, existed in the legal system in Rome or, or in the political system to confer powers on individuals to defend um, the public good, the Commonwealth? So the first one is the dictatorship. There was a short-term magistracy with special powers to deal with a specific crisis, traditionally military, but not only that. And it was a magistracy that was part of uh, the Roman institutional system. So we also see dictators, I don't know, holding elections, if consuls were not there. Um, but then uh, the dictatorship declined, the use of the, uh, of the dictatorship by the 3rd century BC. And, well, it came back, of course, with Sulla and Caesar, but in completely different forms. And, and, I, and I guess that the modern perception of dictatorship is more down to these two great politicians than uh, its uh, origins. Uh, but the, um, and the other is the so-called senatus consultum ultimum, which is technically would be the highest degree uh, decree of the Senate. And this decree is very interesting because what it does uh, is that the Senate decides, first of all, that there is a, a crisis, of emergency, a crisis uh, say situation of emergency, and uh, advises the magistrates or even private individuals that can be named to do anything in order to preserve the safety of the Republic, the, the, the Salus Republica that uh, Nomi mentioned earlier on, but didn't have any specific content, didn't have 
uh, any way of creating the balance that uh, you have been uh, talking about uh, between uh, the interest of the individuals and the common good, as they would have put it. But it was simply on the part of the Senate telling the, the magistrates or wh whoever they decided, go and act in defense of what we perceive <laughs> being a domestic threat. And therefore, what that in practice meant uh, that each time that the Senatus Consultum Ultimum was proposed or indeed enacted uh, was very violently opposed by other members of the elite. And each time uh, these opposition, as well as the proposition of the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, was done in the name of liberty. Uh, so proposers, as well as uh, opponents of this measure, um, claimed to be acting in the name of liberty. And in one case, um, of course, for those who opposed it, is uh, the, uh, the liberty that they claimed was the, the upholding of the existing rights, essentially was the rule of law. But the others instead claimed that the reason why the Senatus Consultum Ultimo had to be passed is because what was at stake was the safety of the Commonwealth on which the liberty of the Commonwealth, as well as of the individual citizens, was actually based. And very briefly, Nomi, you two have been looking at ancient Rome to explore that sort of tension. Um, so from your point of view, um, is there a way that emergency powers can, as you said earlier, respect sort of the values um, that underlie the rule of law, uh, or at least that they can be constrained from violating those rules? So Valentina, brings up two two important points with respect to uh, with with respect to the Roman institutions and one is the centrality of public trust so it, it was extremely important both with the dictatorship and with the uh, uh, Senatus consultum ultimum that uh, that the the person who was tasked with this power was someone of good moral character uh, and and this is something that that when we we think about preser preserving the the rule of law is is uh, extremely important because no matter how much we constrain uh, power through law through constitutional means uh, we can never make emergency powers entirely safe because a, a, a charismatic leader if we think of Julius Caesar for example uh, uh, can always find a way around the law so. When we think about about the rule of law, we shouldn't think about it as something that can ultimately constrain power, unless the those who hold power uh, are engaged in what David Dysonhouse has recently called a rule of law project. So there has to be a moral commitment to the rule of law. It's not simply uh, uh, that it, it's 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 not simply something that operates on its own. But everyone has to be sort of engaged with it morally. We need leaders who are who who are committed to it and of good moral character. Ultimately, it is going to depend not just on the leadership, not just on all of the branches of government, but on the, the polity as a whole and everyone's commitment to the spirit of the rule of law, not just to the letter, you know, not just the letter, we could say. But we do have to recognize that ultimately emergencies are dangerous and no institutions are, you know, can perfectly preserve us. Uh, and uh, we just have to, we, we have to do our best in terms of institutional structures and hope that at the moment where an emergency like this arises, that we have leaders who are of sound moral character. Thank you. Um, Jeff, on that note, um, accountability. I mean, we do like to trust our leaders' um, moral values and uh, we do hope that this trust is warranted, but we now obviously have different kinds of forms in place to actually hold them accountable. Um, in the current circumstances, 
what are these and are they able to guarantee that we will have sufficient scrutiny um, in the UK and possibly also um, in places, say, um, elsewhere? I'll, I'll speak to that in a moment, but I do want to uh, begin by, in, in elaborating themes that were addressed by both Valentina and Nomi, uh, encouraging people not to see this pandemic and the government response to it as essentially a contest between authoritarian-leaning tendency and modern government on the one hand and human rights and civil liberties on the other. So I've made most of my professional research career arguing that human social rights, including the right to health, require robust state protection and provision. And I'm now working on a project arguing that the concept of the rule of law requires uh, the very same thing, which picks up on a theme that, that was alluded to uh, a moment ago by Nomi. But that doesn't change the fact that these are grave restrictions and that uh, a proper accountability for them is important and that the human rights to liberty and a variety of others, equality, non-discrimination, religion, are not in play when these measures are put in place. So what is my assessment of this? I think as far as the human right to health is concerned, the medical and political response to the crisis in Britain has been inadequate at the beginning. It's becoming more appropriate. As for the political and legal control over the government's powers, I tend to view in the UK at any rate that the basic framework is, is more or less fit for purpose. I don't think we're witnessing substantial violations. That is not to say interferences. Of course, there are interferences, but not violations of rights to liberty and property. Uh, it's important that the the whole legal framework has not been suspended or derogated from. The presence of a Bill of Rights is meaningful. I think that the framework that's provided in the Coronavirus Act, on the one hand, one could say that that's to rush through a gigantic statute in, in less than a week with very little discussion is an outrage. And on one view, it really is. But the other option, of course, was to go with um, what Valentina was describing as just the idea of public trust, that we should give incredibly broad discretionary power to the government under, for instance, the Civil Contingencies Act, or by suspending uh, the operation of constitutions elsewhere. My view is that a much more detailed framework provides for a litany of controls of the sort Nomi was describing very accurately. My main concern uh, is the haphazard way in which the continued provision for Parliament to meet and exercise control has been dealt with. It should have been dealt with up front, and it wasn't, even though the concern was brought to the attention of the House. Um, a second uh, concern is that the powers remain time-bound. So the government agreeing to a six-month sunset clause is, is excellent. And the third element, which is important and I think largely observed, is that the courts need to be able to meet and continue to have the power to have exercise constraint over the government. It is the case presently that you can bring a case to the high court and judicial review and appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court without even leaving your house. You can do it all online at the moment. I think that's a good thing for, for human rights. Can we possibly um, end a fascinating conversation by looking ahead? Um, we haven't at the moment got any um, intrusive forms of surveillance in place, such as they had in Wuhan when the uh, crisis started. But there are certainly uh, talks about the possibility of doing so in order to trace and test. Um, how would... Um, a mobile technology of this kind change the state of play, Nomi? Well, I think the first thing to uh, take note of is that this doesn't need to be a trade-off. In many cases, uh, and particularly in, in the case, for example, of contact tracing apps, 
uh, it doesn't have to be a trade-off. So, for example, uh, there there are many examples of contact tracing apps that 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 are not intrusive and do not surveil. So, in Singapore, for example, like, for example, the the app that the the government has uh, developed here uh, cleverly gathers only what information is needed. So there's no GPS tracking. It's just the Bluetooth pings. Uh, and those are stored on the individual's phone. The individual can instantly delete all of that data and withdraw consent at any time. And it's only at the point where that individual becomes ill and uh, opts to share the information on their phone to help the contact tracers that, uh, um, uh, that the government has access to it. So we, we shouldn't necessarily assume that technology has to come along with intrusiveness or uh, or surveillance. There are ways of doing this that uh, that are that are less intrusive. So we should be thinking about optimizing, not trading off. It's worth noting that uh, the Singapore Privacy Commission was involved in the development of this app right from the start, uh, in part because uh, people are less likely to use the technology if if it does feel like surveillance, if it does feel intrusive. But even in a high-trust society like this one, there's only been about 20% uptake uh, among cell phone users as, as a whole. And so uh, I think a lot of governments are, are looking to technology and thinking this is going to be a sort of a silver bullet that sets us all free. But uh, from what I understand, there, there are so many human technology problems and so many problems the way the technology might actually work that, uh, that we may be sort of placing hope in technology when in fact emergencies will always, you know, technology can give us more information, but emergencies will always require uh, individual judgment. And so we have here a tool, technology is a tool, but not a solution. Thank you very much for this, Naomi. And thank you also to you, Jeff and Valentina. It is very rare that a conversation stretches from ancient Rome to mobile technologies. Now, if listeners wanted to do more diligence on the last part that we have just discussed, digital safeguards, which we cannot unfortunately expand on further here, there are various very interesting initiatives underway. Among these is a new contact tracing system developed by a team of scientists and data privacy experts, including from UCL, which enables epidemiologists to analyse the spread of the pandemic while fully respecting individual rights to privacy. But for now, let me say thank you again to my three guests for their valuable insights from rather different disciplines, historical periods and geographical locations today too. Thanks are also due to you, our listeners, of course, for tuning in. As the crisis will remain no doubt a major challenge for Europe and globally for quite a few weeks to come, we will continue to provide analyses and discussions as part of this series. So please do subscribe to our newsletter and consider following us on social media to keep up to date with our activities. We hope you will also join us next time. Until then, stay safe. Mm-hmm.